Well, good evening. Tonight is a Good Friday service. Um, it is a service that really commemorates the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. 2,000 years ago, just before dark, they were about ready to take his body off the cross. But it is an important time. It's an, it's an extremely important time to what we believe. The Lord Jesus Christ, even as we speak now, as we set this all up tonight, is hanging on the cross for our atonement. So what we decided to do tonight in a unique setting is take the seven sayings that the Lord Jesus spoke on the cross. Every one of them is amazing. And I, there are seven different men who are about to speak on those, just five minutes apiece. And in between, some great songs that Hayward and the guys are going to lead us in that we're going to just sing and, and remember what the Lord has done. So let's pray and let's, uh, let's contemplate these sayings tonight. Think deeply. The scripture will be all up on the screen behind you, but think deeply with these men as they discuss these sayings and how they affect our lives even to this day. So I'm, thank, I'm thankful you all came out tonight. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, this is a, really a glorious night. It is somewhat sobering, Lord, because we take time to remember that your son died on this night. He was hung on a cross by godless men, Peter said in Acts 2. But it was done by the predetermined plan of God. God had planned this. But godless men nailed him to a cross. And there he was, hanging there, the Father judging him for our sins. Him atoning for our sins. Perfectly appeasing the Father's wrath. What an amazing event. Lord, if this event were not true, we are the biggest fools. But Lord, we believe in all of our hearts, Lord. We believe your word. We believe, God, you did what you said you did. You sent your son. The Lord Jesus hung on that cross. He was judged in our place. And we are free. We are free from our sins. And so, Lord, we are not here to gain something. We are here to give something. We're here to give you worship and honor and praise. And we're here to remember your work. And so, Lord, I pray that everything said and sung and done here tonight will bring great glory to you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. I 
cross, at the cross, I surrender my life. I'm in all of you. I'm in all of you. Where your love ran red in my sin washed white, I owe all to you. I owe all to you. Sin and shame are powerless. And where my heart has peace with God and forgiveness, where all the love I've Comes like a flood, comes flowing down. At the cross, at the cross, I surrender my life. I'm in all of you. I'm in all of you. Where your love ran red in my sin. I owe all to you, I owe all to you, oh here my hope is found, here on holy ground, here I bow down, here I bow down, here arms open wide, here you save my life, here I bow Chapter 23, verse 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. In order to grasp the magnitude of these words, it is very important to understand the full context of what Jesus had endured up to this point. Jesus, the holy, righteous, sovereign one that existed from eternity past, up to this point, would have already endured tremendous hardships. Our Savior, he was punched, slapped, beaten, and spat upon by Roman and Jewish officials. He was whipped. Before his crucifixion, Roman officials likely would have lifted his arms and tied his arms around a pole 
so that he would be slouched over. And in that position, two Roman officials would have took turns whipping Christ on the back from the lower part of his neck all the way down to his knees. And this was no normal whip. This whip was put together by thongs of leather that had bones and metal intertwined within that leather. These blows would have caused deep and painful lacerations. After being whipped by the soldiers in their mockery, they would have put a robe of wool on him. The wool would have irritated his wounds. After that, they would have put a crown of thorns on his head with a stick and spat upon him. At some point, as Christ's blood began to dry, it would have adhered to the wool. And the soldiers likely would have whipped up, ripped off that, that robe and with it, reopening the wounds. Despite suffering from a lack of sleep, food, and water, and being severely beaten, Jesus was forced to carry the horizontal beam of the cross up the hill of called Golgotha. It is at this point when Jesus is at the top of the hill and he is laying on the cross. Some people believe he cried out these words, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing at one of two points. He could have said this as the five to seven inch spikes were being rammed into his wrist. Imagine in that moment already enduring all that pain. And at that very moment, as those nails went through his wrist, he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Some also speculate as the cross was being put into the ground, as Jesus was feeling the weight of his body pressed up against the nails. At that moment, some speculate, is when Jesus cried out, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. Imagine how you or I would have responded in this moment. We likely would have asked God to deliver wrath and judgment upon these mockers. But in moments like this, we see the vast difference between Christ and us. In the words of Christ, we can learn three, more than three, but many different things. But tonight, I want to highlight three things that we can learn from these words. Number one is Christ is abundantly merciful. Despite being tormented, Jesus is pleading for the forgiveness of guilty men. Notice that Jesus says, forgive them. The need for forgiveness implies that these men were guilty. These men knew what they were doing. They were killing an innocent man. Yet, they did not fully understand that they were crucifying the Lord of glory. They were not fully aware of their wickedness. Yet, despite their guilt and their level of ignorance, Christ pleads for their forgiveness. Number two, what we can learn from these words is this, that the prayer of Christ led to something unimaginable, the salvation of sinners. Jesus' prayer that night was answered. For those who were in the crowd, 
excuse me, those who were in the crowd, those who were wanting the death of Christ, were later saved at Pentecost. Many of them were. So in that night, those who were demanding the piercing of Jesus' body were later pierced with the word of God, leading to salvation. Hallelujah. Number three, we can learn from this. If forgiveness is available to those who crucified Christ, then surely salvation is available to anyone who repents. We all love and know John 3.16. In John 3.16, Christ says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. In moments like this, when we feel as though our sin is great and our guilt even greater, God reminds us that his grace is even greater than that. The fact is this. Christ is eager to forgive repentant sinners. He is eager to lavishly forgive those who call out on the name of the Lord. Tonight, let's be reminded in this moment of despair that the words of Christ were this, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Luke 23, verse 43. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The speaker here is the Lord Jesus Christ as he hangs on the cross. The audience is not his disciples, not his mother who is in attendance, not the crowd, but a thief hanging on the cross next to him. This was a shocking statement to many and reveals much about the gospel, why Jesus came to earth, why he was hanging on a cross. There's three things I noticed immediately that were not there. One, Jesus did not say, today you'll be with me in purgatory. Secondly, this thief was not saved by his works. He didn't have any. And none of us can be. Thirdly, this thief was never baptized, and yet we know that he went to heaven. Water baptism is an act of obedience, but not salvific. It is a good work, but we're not saved by works. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The Bible tells us that Christ came to save sinners. Even before Jesus was born, the angel appeared to Joseph and said to him, You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And we see this demonstrated right here on Calvary's Hill, where he hung on the cross, suffering the wrath of the Father on behalf of those who would believe including this thief who was right next to him. The Matthew account tells us in chapter 27 that both of these thieves were hurling insults at Jesus. But then something happened. One of the thieves stopped insulting, turned to the other thief, and rebuked him, 
and then turn to Christ and beg for mercy and for eternal life. Listen to the text. One of the criminals who was hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What just happened? Did this man just decide to start living a better life? I don't think so. Did he decide to turn over a new leaf? Absolutely not. God changed his heart. God opened his eyes. God exchanged a heart of stone for a heart of flesh. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, the Bible says this, He, that is the Father, made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And that is demonstrated that Friday on that hill as Jesus took on the sins of that thief and everyone who would believe. And his righteousness was imputed to that thief. Some of the old theologians called that the great transaction. And that transaction took place on that Friday, on that hill. And it's the same transaction that's happened in every one of our lives who love Christ and have been saved. Truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. You give life, you are love, you bring light to the darkness, you give hope, you restore every heart that is broken, and
John 19, verses 25 to 27. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. Before we look at Jesus' words here to his mother Mary and to John, we need to note that they were both suffering greatly with sorrow. Simeon had, had warned when Jesus was a baby that a sword would pierce Mary's heart, and here it is. Notice that, that sin causes suffering. Christ is on that cross, suffering in the place of all of his chosen ones, of all time, from every tongue and tribe and people and nation, including for the sins of Mary and John. And at this time, Mary and John are suffering great sorrow as they watch Christ suffer. Just imagine Mary in particular. She bore Jesus. She nurtured Jesus. 
She raised Jesus. The excruciation of, of sorrow in her heart is unimaginable. And note, when we suffer sorrow, it does not mean God has rejected us. Those dearly loved by the Lord can suffer. And Christ here in the midst of his own infinitely greater suffering has love and compassion for Mary and John and their suffering. And he does for every believer today as well, as we're told in 1 Peter 5. So we can be encouraged here. Rest in and worship Christ for his love and compassion for his people suffering from sin. We see Christ's love and compassion here in his care for his mother as her son. In verses 26 and 27, he entrusts his mom to the apostle John. A widow in that society at that time would have no available means to take care of herself. And Jesus here is assuring her she'll be cared for after his death. And as he knows, after his ascension. And even as Jesus there on the cross is engaged in the greatest spiritual work of all time. He does not neglect, but is faithful to his earthly love and duties, particularly as he himself commands us in Ephesians 6 to honor his mother. And may we, by his grace, follow that example. We see, secondly, Christ's love and compassion here in his care for his mother as her Lord and Savior. These words are filled with, with the warm love of a son, in this case, a perfect son for his mother. But Jesus doesn't address her as mother. He addresses her woman. He had done the same in John chapter 2 as he began his public ministry, and it points to a truth and to a relationship that's even greater than son and mother. He's expressing here his love for her as one of his own, as her Savior and her Lord. And we need to pause and note that the Roman Catholic teaching that John represents all of us and we're all put under Mary as the mother of all is not true. Physically, in this instance, it's the exact opposite. He's trusting Mary to John to take care of her physically. As he on the cross is taking care of both of them and all who would ever trust him, spiritually and eternally as he's atoning for sin. And then thirdly, we see Christ's love and compassion in his loving blessing of John, the disciple whom he loves. He'd warned the night before all of them would, would, would betray him, will, will fail him, and John did just that. He fled. But now we find him back at the cross. The love of Christ has drawn him. And as he's there, how does Christ respond to John? Scolding? A harsh look? Ignoring him, condemning him forever? No, none of those. He clearly is included in forgiveness. He's welcomed and he's bestowed with the credible blessing of being entrusted with Jesus' mother to care for. We see Christ's love and compassion. If you've never come to him, come to him in repentance and faith. And believers, when we fail him, let's be quick to return to him. Rest in and worship Christ for his love and compassion for his people suffering from sin. Matthew chapter 27 and verse 46. 
And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This passage is also found, echoed in Mark chapter 15 and verse 34. And they're virtually identical, with the exception that Mark prefers the Aramaic translation of Eloi as opposed to the Hebrew Eli. This seventh saying of Jesus is, in my opinion, the richest with profound mystery and meaning. Now, if you have a study Bible or maybe a Bible with notations, it would direct you to Psalm 22 in verse 1. And yes, this is a direct quote, and I won't read from it, but it says the same thing. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But this, make no mistake, was no mere recitation of a passage of Scripture. This was the very cry of Jesus' heart as he bore the sins of the world on the cross. And given how difficult it is to even breathe normally on a cross, much less cry with a loud voice as Jesus did, gives evidence of the depth of Jesus' anguish. But to truly understand that anguish, we must back up and remind ourselves why he was dying in the first place. You see, he was not a martyr. He wasn't dying as a martyr. Why would God forsake somebody for that? God calls some of his people to die as a martyr. That would be approved by God. He wasn't merely being falsely accused and condemned by the authorities. God would not surely forsake somebody for that. He was not, an ex he was not giving us an example of the awfulness of sin, as if we needed that. He wasn't giving some supposed ransom to Satan, as if he was entitled to that. No, but as he hung there, he was bearing the sins of those who would put their faith in him, past, present, and future. He was dying as a substitute in their place. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 thinks says it best, that he who knew no sin became sin for us. You see, he just didn't bear sin, although he did. He became sin. And in so doing, in those awful hours on the cross, the Father poured out the full measure of his unbridled, unrestrained wrath upon sin, and the recipient was his beloved Son. Christ was forsaken by the Father. Now, I want to make sure we understand that at that moment, Jesus did not cease in any way of being God. He didn't stop being the Son of God. But he did cease to experience the fellowship that he had with the Father that they both had from eternity past. This fellowship we clearly see in even Genesis chapter 1, where God says, let us make man in our image. The us is the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, having fellowship with each other. This fellowship that had existed in eternity past now came to a sudden and abrupt stop for the first time ever. He was forsaken. But the good news is that he was willing to be forsaken. See, we're going to continue the thought of 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. He became sin so that we might become the righteousness 
of God. He was willing to be forsaken by the Father so that you can be accepted by the Father. And despite the anguish he felt, he did it willingly for you. Put your faith in Christ tonight.
The fifth saying of Jesus on the cross comes from John 19.28 and reads, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, to fulfill Scripture said, I thirst. After this, after being arrested, declared innocent by Pilate, and yet whipped and beaten, after his walk to Golgotha, being crucified, after the darkness of God's wrath for three hours, Jesus says, I thirst. What I want to show you here is that on display in this one sentence is the glorious view of our Lord Jesus. For here on a cross, with a man that is disfigured in indescribable pain, and near his death, we find hope, we find comfort, and we find joy. We'll find this in seeing Jesus thirst as a man, Jesus thirst as God, and Jesus thirst as Savior. Jesus thirst as a man, no doubt, that the first thing we see when Jesus says, I thirst, is the normal human reaction to what has taken place. He had given everything of himself, and having been emptied, he thirsted. Jesus felt things deeply, so when he states, I thirst, he in part shows his humanity. Brothers and sisters, I find great comfort knowing our Savior was a human that has emotions and feelings as I do. Do not be ashamed to cry out to God in your trials and in your suffering that you thirst, for you join Jesus in expressing your pain. But I also want you to see in his humanity the pain and sacrifice that Jesus went through for you. He suffered physically as a man. We can imagine the sting of the whip on our backs, and we can imagine the nail slowly piercing our hands because these are all feelings common to humans. And when we think about this suffering, we can marvel that it was done for us. And yet Jesus thirsted as God. Let us not forget, though, this is not a mere man on that cross. No, it is the God-man. Demonstrated in the first part of John 19.28, stating that Jesus knew that all things had been accomplished. See, Jesus was in complete control. He wasn't as a man that faces a difficult task, hoping that his best would be enough. No, brothers and sisters, he knew exactly what it was going to take to finish the task. And he knew he would finish it because he was God and would not allow anything short of complete fulfillment. Even in his own death, Jesus was in complete control. Neither the Jews, Pilate, or the soldiers controlled him. Jesus displayed his words in John 10, 18, No one takes my life away from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. In the words of John Piper, Jesus Christ was not a helpless victim. No, he was the almighty, sovereign son of God, voluntarily submitting himself to humiliation and suffering, laying down his life on his own accord. Next, we see Jesus is God because, as John 19, 28 states, he was fulfilling Scripture. Through the pain and suffering, Jesus had the clarity of mind hanging on that cross to orchestrate his creation like instruments in the beautiful symphony of his death. He cries out, I thirst, which echoes Psalm twenty-two fifteen, which says, My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. And his creation responds in fulfillment of Psalm 69.21, which says, They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. And lastly, Jesus thirst as our Savior. No doubt that Jesus had physical thirst that made him cry out, and yet Jesus had thirst beyond the physical. Thirst in John was always in the context of spiritual thirst, the thirst of salvation. 
John 14, 14, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Or John 6, 35, Jesus said, whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And yet after three hours of enduring God the Father's wrath, Jesus thirsted. Hebrews 2, 9 says, Jesus tasted death for us for those three hours. And as the rich man in Hades of Luke 16, it left him thirsty for a single drop of water. Jesus thirsted. He thirsted to complete his sacrifice for our salvation. He thirsted to be with the Father again. He thirsted for you. Spurgeon states, Think not lightly of sin and its punishment, lest you come to think lightly of Christ and what he suffered to redeem for you from your guilt. The cry, I thirst, is part of the substitutionary work which Christ performed when he thirsted, because otherwise sinners would have thirsted forever and have been denied all pleasure, joy, and peace of heaven. Are you here tonight thirsty? Are you here tonight with a thirst in your soul for something that you cannot find in the world? You see, the soldiers gave Jesus sour wine because that was the best the world can do. They offer temporary appeasement as you continue to die in your sins. But Jesus, no, Jesus offers living water. Jesus offers water that takes your heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh, giving you new life eternally. Go to him. Drink of him, because he thirsted, you will never have to thirst again. In John chapter 19, verse 30, Jesus said one word about his cross work. In Greek, it's tetelestai. In the English, we translate it, it is finished. When I think about the cross work of Christ, I just think about the joy of God in being God. I just think about the, the discussions in the triune Godhead that must have gone on throughout all of human history. When I think about the creation, how it was alluded to just a little while ago that God said, let us make man in our own image. You have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit thinking about creation and, and just what a beautiful earth it must have been before sin entered the world. And at the end of the sixth day of creation, after God had finished his creating, he said, it is very good. And I just think of Christ on the cross when he says, it is finished. Here is the triune God in their relationship in redemption. And having accomplished this work on the cross, I just think about the joy of the Father and the Son and the Spirit together in pondering what has been accomplished. Perhaps it went something like this, Jesus saying to the Father, Remember when you said through Moses, the child will be born of the woman and his, or her seed will crush the serpent's head. Well, that's what I'm doing right now. I'm crushing the serpent's head. Yes, he has wounded me on the heel, but I'm defeating him. What about when, uh, when we designed the Passover and how we would kill the, we'd have the Israelites kill the Passover lamb and the blood would be spread on the lintel and on the doorposts? Well, now I'm fulfilling that shadow of me shedding my blood so that people could be covered by my blood, their sins would be forgiven. And remember the prophecies. Remember 
Psalm 22, I just said that. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And I accomplished what that was prefiguring. And what about Isaiah 53 when we had Isaiah write about the suffering servant? Now I'm the suffering servant and I'm accomplishing everything that we designed. And what about the law, Lord? How we designed it so that man would see that the fulfillment of all righteousness would be to love the Lord your God with all your soul, all your strength, all your might, and to love your neighbor as yourself. I've done that, Lord. I've perfectly fulfilled all righteousness. I've fulfilled the law to the T. And now those who have faith in me can have all their sins forgiven. You can look at them And because you're well-pleased in me and I've appeased all of your wrath, you can say you are justified. You're declared to be righteous. Every single person can say, it is finished. My sin has been taken care of. You know, one thing that was not finished on the cross was the proclamation of it. What Christ wants us to do now that he has been crucified is to preach the cross to other people. We need to go to others and say, it is finished. You don't need to work to be saved. You don't need to add anything. You can't deserve it. You can't merit. You can't be good enough to gain salvation. You must trust in Christ's finished work on the cross alone for your salvation. But not only does the whole world need to to hear it, and must we preach it to all tribes and all nations until the Lord comes, but we need to hear this message as well, don't we? Anytime you're feeling insufficient, anytime you feel like you don't deserve your relationship with the Lord or your salvation, every time you feel like you need to add something to grace, anytime you feel like you are just too sinful and you can't, possibly be really saved you've got to keep coming back to the cross and to these words of jesus jesus said it is finished he's done it all you can't add anything to it so just say this with me it is finished
left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. And when before the throne I stand in Him complete. Jesus died my soul to sin, my lips shall still repeat. Jesus paid it all, all to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, He washed it white as snow. the crimson stain he washed it white as snow chapter 24 verse 46 says this and Jesus crying out with a loud voice said father into your hands I commit my spirit and having said this he breathed his last quite different from humans this led me to a thought this week I thought about Frank Sinatra in 1969 he made famous the song my way As you know, that song repeats over and over, I did it my way. Mr. Sinatra died May 14th, 1998, age 92, after a heart attack. He lived an immoral life and died in poor health. He was hospitalized with a failing heart, breathing problems, high blood pressure, pneumonia, and bladder cancer. He was further diagnosed with dementia, And he made no public appearances after February 1997. Sinatra's wife encouraged him to fight it till the end. And she reported that his final words were, I'm losing. But not so with our Savior. He had absolutely complete control of the moment of his death. No one can do that. Our Lord hung on the cross, and he knew the hour had come. Earlier that week, as he made his way into Jerusalem, in John chapter 12, verse 23, he said, as he spoke to his disciples, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What a statement. Have you heard all these 
now seven sayings. Here the Lord says, it's my time to be glorified. All this was leading to his glory. You and I can try to plan our death. We can take out life insurances. We can have the best health care. But we cannot control death. We were reminded of the great saying of the Lord Jesus Christ as he spoke. For this reason the Father loves me. Because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one. No one has taken it away from me. But I lay it down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up. This commandment I receive from my Father. He was doing the Lord's will. And when I read this verse, it captures me. There he is crying aloud. Mustering up his last strength after six great, phenomenal, salvific statements. He says, with a loud voice, Father, I'm done. I commit my life. I hand it over to you. He had done the Father's will. He had done exactly what they had planned from eternity past. As mentioned, he had fulfilled the law. He had told people he did not come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill it. He had appeased the wrath of God. Romans 5, 9 tells us this, tells us this much more than having now been justified, declared righteous by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God. That's what took place on that cross. If you're a believer in this room, you'll never see the wrath of God because he hung there. What an astounding thing. He was the perfect propitiation, 1 John 2, 2, and he himself is the propitiation of our sins. He is that satisfying payment for us. Oh, the Father was so pleased with him as he committed his last breath to the Father. And then so rightly said tonight, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin, the sinless one, to be our sin on our behalf. And the verse doesn't quit there. So you and I can have his righteousness. You cannot be in heaven without God's righteousness. And anyone who tries will be rejected and sent to hell. He had to die for us. But he had absolutely full control of everything. And now there's nothing left for us to do but to believe. And faith produces a life that is pleasing to the Lord. And we walk with him now. And so as you've listened to these seven sayings taught by seven different men that needed that same Jesus to die for us. I trust you've been encouraged. Let's sing one more song together and then we'll close. Man of sorrows, live God by his own betrayal. The sin of man and 
has been on Jesus' day. Silent as he stood accused, he did not in scorn. Salvation. 
three years ago, I put out a little word that we were going to do a Good Friday service, kind of a Bible study in the Fellowship Hall. I, I think 30 or 40 people came, or something like that, and uh, we had a great time together. And last year, we did this, and I think there was 100 people. And now look at all of you. So praise the Lord. Um, this is just a great time, and uh, I, I truly enjoyed this. I truly enjoyed hearing each one of these men. I would invite you to go get a bite to eat afterwards or get an ice cream with the family and talk about some of these sayings. Have a conversation tonight. Maybe it'll lead into talking to someone else. Remember Sunday morning, um, we have a, a wonderful day a planned. Uh, our 6.30 sunrise service, it looks like the weather's going to be beautiful. It'll nice be a little bit cool, and so bring a blanket, bring your chairs. Try to sit up, those of our, our members here, try to sit up closer up front, because everybody wants to spill far away from that stage. So come sit up close and, and help us get that service. We'll have lots of people from the community will come to this. Uh, it's just a great opportunity. That service will just be an hour um, on Sunday morning from 6.30 to 7.30. And then you can go home, get your Easter bonnet on or whatever you do on Easter, and uh, come back at 10.30. We have just a wonderful service of rejoicing, rejoicing. This was a bit somber as we thought and contemplated the death of Christ. But the resurrection is God's stamp of approval on our salvation. So we're going to rejoice that morning. And so we invite you to be at those services as well. Blessings. Thanks for coming out. You are dismissed.